When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And this is a very special episode of Pod Dylan. Uh, we're not talking about a particular Bob Dylan song. In fact, I have a very special guest, musician, Emma Swift. Hi, Emma. Hi. It's so great to have you here. I'm very excited to talk to you. It's an absolute delight to be here. Uh, it's going to be fun to not talk about just one song, but you know I totally would have done that if you wanted. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that for another another show at another time another at some time. point. But uh, for any any of you listening who don't who doesn't know don't know already, uh, Emma is coming out with a new record called Blonde on the Tracks, which is a a all Bob Dylan cover album. Now, what, before, let's just start off, Emma. When does the album come out? The album comes out on August 14th this year. All right, perfect, perfect. That'll just be uh, just a couple of weeks from the time we're recording this, so this will give everybody time to go out and get, pre-order the record, order the record, and, of course, there you've already released a couple of tracks from Queen Jane Approximately and the I Contain Multitudes, and we're going to talk about all of that in this interview. Before we, before we get any, any start any of that, though, I have to start, like, how did you become a musician? Like, how did this become your life? Oh, gosh. How did I <laughs> Go all the way back, Emma. Whoa. So uh, I bought my first guitar, a cheap nylon string acoustic guitar, when I was 15. Um, I'd saved the money from a weekend job. I worked in a local bakery in a <laughs> small regional town in Australia called Wagga Wagga. Um, and the way, you know, Wagga Wagga is a place in suburban Australia. It's a lot like saying, oh, I grew up in the Midwest in gotcha. the United States for kind of context. Um, and my parents, they're not musicians. They're not very musical. Uh, they liked playing records, but they didn't really encourage my creativity or anything. Uh, so I had to finance it myself. So I bought this guitar and, um, yeah, it was good preparation for the music industry because like <laughs> self-funding is kind of where it's at. This mm. on the tracks, the whole record is self-funded and self-released. Um, so I, I learned the guitar, but I'm a pretty shitty guitar player. Um, what I bought it for, and, you know, it's it's many years since then, but I'm still pretty uh, amateur, let's say. I'm a hack, uh, especially living in Nashville where so many people are great at the guitar. Um, <laughs> but I basically bought it so I could sing along to the guitar, and I began singing when I was much younger. Singing to me has always been a kind of natural thing. I never, there's not a point in my life where I can, where I don't think of myself being a singer. It's something that it's natural to me is walking. I love it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's been a funny journey. And for writing, um, I'm really interested in poetry and music. So most of the writers outside people like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and all that Laurel Canyon stuff that, like, if you listen to my record, I'm obviously so very into I got into poets like Gertrude Stein, Dylan Thomas, and W.H. Auden, T.S. Eliot, Anne Sexton, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so that's the music and poetry intersection has been going on for me for a while, you know, like kind of since those teenage years. 
Um, but it did take me a really long time to find my feet actually as a songwriter. Um, how did how did you? I mean, when you when when you started it, were you sort of um, like I want to? You heard something and you were like, I want to try and do that, or did that just inspire you to try and do your own thing? Well, I think the first song that I ever heard that made me probably want to be a singer is seeing Sinead O'Connor doing "Nothing Compares to You." Mm. Oh yeah, remember that? In nineteen ninety, I was eight, very impressionable age, and uh, watching that music video, and and she has this magic single tear that rolls down her face and I was just transfixed I thought oh man I want to grow up and I want to sing really sad songs (laughs) (laughs) so so that's something that I really pursued for a very long time but then like many people I sort of grew I grew up in such a, a boring and suburban place that my dreams were quite dull and suburban too. Uh, I, uh, despite loving music, I didn't leave high school thinking I'm going to be a musician. Mm-hmm. I went and became a, I went to college, did English literature and became a journalist, <laughs> um, mm. which is a great career for someone who loves words and super fun, but it wasn't very, um, very musical. Right. Um, and it was later that I started songwriting more, um, in my late 20s, I started listening to a lot of Graham Parsons, mm-hmm. uh, and that got me wanting to write songs. Uh, and the songs I began with were really not very good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is such a, 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 a cliche, and, you know, it's not that way for everyone. You know, Bob Dylan basically burst out of the gate a genius, but... Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, for most of us, it takes a little bit, a little bit more work. Do you have a particular process about how you write songs? Because I'm always, I, I've been hearing so many different. I'm obviously doing the show for so long. Bob has his own uh, way of doing it. Sometimes he says like they cut, like you talked about the most, the, the new record that these songs came to him in a trance, and he doesn't even necessarily necessarily know what they mean, and then he figures that out sort of later, which I, I can't wrap my head around. You know, I mean, but I've never written a song, so I don't know. Do you have? Is there, do you have one way that songs come to you or is it, is it like Bob where it's, it can be lots of different ways? It's multiple ways. I've had songs that I've dreamed before and sort Mm -hmm. of woken up and then had to get it down. But most of the songs that I'm writing at the moment, which are songs that probably for the first time in my life, I feel like I stand by and go, Mm. yeah, I wrote that song. I'm proud of that song. Uh, My approach has been very slow and very steady, quite academic constant revisioning um i don't keep a physical notebook anymore i write in the notes section of my iphone um and uh the benefit of that is it's really good to go in and revise in it's quite easy and also i mean it matters less now with covid because i don't leave the house so if i need to place a notebook it's somewhere right (laughs) But when I was on tour, you know, a physical notebook, I'm so inclined to leave behind in a cafe or on a plane or or whatever. But, yeah, I constantly revise and I never, ever treat it like a day job. Uh, some songwriters, there's a, there's a school of songwriting thought that says, show up. You've got to show up. You've just got to turn up every day and get whatever it is that you get down. And I... I didn't pursue 
the not very lucrative career of music, <laughs> or at least not very lucrative if you're me, so I could treat it like a day job. Like mm. I do it because it's my passion. And, and so for me, sometimes I've got to go out and live my life mm-hmm. and just experience things uh, before I can sit down with a guitar or my notebook. And, and, and I just have to trust that the poetry will, will come. Yeah. It's yeah. easier said than done sometimes too. Right. <laughs> you have to figure that so many musicians now use their iPhone for a similar, you know, that's how they do it. And you think all the future music historians that are not going to have anything to perm through because it's all going to be gone. There's not going to be little red that. notebooks for anybody anymore. Well, it's funny because I'm a fan of Anne Margaret Daniels, uh, the psychologist, right. and um, she. I was listening to a podcast that she was on last week, and she was talking about going through Dylan's notebooks for the museum that's about to open up in Tulsa. And I was like, oh, wow, that sounds so cool and incredible. And, and then I was like, yep, I'm not leaving any legacy behind. <laughs> but I am, I mean, my approach to releasing this album is very um 1992 mm-hmm. like it's not going to be on streaming services it's on vinyl digital download and cassette mm-hmm. so in cassette. In, many ways, <laughs> in many ways i respect the uh the leaving behind of gifts for the future right can you imagine i can't i can't imagine i can't picture bob dylan writing songs on an iphone like i can't <laughs> that, that makes no sense to me i can't picture him sitting there with his little sit there he's like yeah i mean i can't picture i try not to picture too much about bob dylan i try not to make any assumptions about the man that's probably a smart move uh, well let, let, all right let's perfect segue because we're here to talk about uh, bob and your record so when did you first discover his music Right. Um, so I was born in December in 1981. <laughs> so Infidels is probably the first Bob Dylan record to make an impression on me, uh, just in that very literal chronological sense. Right. Of being here. Uh, yeah, you were two. It wasn't like you were listening to it or anything. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing is I'm really passionate about this record. Um, I, I do wonder what kind of impact that might've had on my tiny brain, like where it was that I would have heard songs from infidels bit on the radio or what my parents or their friends were playing at parties. Um, so, and yeah, it's an album of the Reagan era. Um, yeah. and I think that rough and rowdy ways and, and in a way that it's an album of this particular era, it, I, I go back to infidels all the time. I, I love it. Um, so, and I, I really love the um, the patriotism is the last last refuge to which the <laughs> scoundrel clings. Mm-hmm. Uh, steal a little and they throw you in jail. Steal a lot and they make you a king. Oh, that line. It's like in many ways, we're all living in sweetheart like you right yes. now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sadly true. Yes. Um, so that yeah, and then from there, I really have a very distinct memory of being at. Um, a barbecue in Australia in the late eighties and hearing the traveling Wilburys. Mm, okay. Um, but, but during that time, it wasn't Bob Dylan that I was drawn to in the Wilburys. It was Roy Orbison. Was okay. Beautiful, thick, rich voice that he had artistically though. And I, I think this is the answer that you're probably chasing, but I've just gone about I'm it. not chasing any answer at all. I am just trying to find out. I, there's, <laughs> I have no preset answer here look, that I'm looking for. I'm a verbose lady, um, you know, uh, but in a, 
so we've got to, in a very circuitous way, I've got to the point is that um, I guess discovering Bob Dylan as a songwriter and what he might mean or represent as an artist um, is when I was a teenager, mm. which I think is what I have in common with almost every hardcore Dylan fan is that kind of teenage discovery. Because when you're a teenager, whether you're hearing Bob Dylan's work for the first time and you're a 17 year old in 1965 or 1975 or 1985 or 1995 or 2005, um, the heart is just ready. It's so open, it's so ready to be capsized by music at 17. You're really, mm-hmm. oh yeah, there. You're so ready for the downpour. So, seventeen-year-old me um, had a copy of Blonde on Blonde that I picked up in a thrift store um, <laughs> in Australia. We call thrift stores opportunity shops. And, oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> How delightfully um, upbeat, isn't it? And and I love the idea that the record being in a in a thrift store is an opportunity um, because there's something serendipitous there's a fate about picking up a record in a thrift store because any old thing can be in there yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it could be Beethoven's sonatas or it could be blonde on blonde what right. do you forget? like they're right there <laughs> side by side um so yes at 17 and blonde on blonde that was probably the point at which I just went oh wow uh, and you know of course it's so weird when you as someone like me, much of the music that I am so enamoured by happened so long before I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny, you know, I'll be, you know, listening to Blonde on Blonde and then putting on Aladdin Sane or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or putting on Talking Heads or, you know, like all, all music is new. In that moment. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when, when did you decide you wanted to do this? Like what, what point did you say, I think I want to put together a whole album of, of covers of this guy? 2017, I decided to make Blonde on the Tracks. Um, it was a very uh, difficult time for me personally. Um, I wasn't writing my own songs and I was pretty depressed um, for a range of reasons. Um uh, you know, the, on a on a personal level, I was just sort of doing that thing that I think a lot of people in their thirties face, where it's like, oh, what next? What am I doing with my life? I'm a little bit broken and a little bit lost, and uh, yeah, um, so that was a, a challenging time. And then I was really upset politically post the election of um, of forty five. So. Mm. I wasn't able to articulate any of my pain, though, or any of my sadness. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. And, and so I decided to record some Bob Dylan songs instead. And I more or less stole the idea wholesale from him because he had just released the third of Triplicate. Right. So, like he put out Triplicate and I was like, oh, what a great idea. The great American songbook. What could I do? Ah, Bob Dylan. Great. (laughs) It was, and then I went from there. No. So now when you said you recorded them, uh, was that, was, was, did you sit down with the idea of this is going to be a a record or did you record them 
kind of for your own personal therapy and then it evolved into maybe I could do more of these and actually release it or, or was it just kind of for your own you know, um, like I said, your own therapy in the beginning. It was both. Like in many ways, it was a, a therapy exercise, an art as therapy exercise, but I did hire proper musicians. I mean, I live in Nashville too, so. You're right in the thick of it. <laughs> I'm in the thick of it. There's some wonderful players and my friend Patrick Sansone, who produced this album, he's on tour with his band Wilco a lot. So it was really, it's hard to get in the studio with Pat because so Mm -hmm. often he's on tour, whereas he was at home and I needed a motivation to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to get in the studio and I'm going to make this Dylan record and, uh, and see how it unfolds. So what about it was therapeutic? I mean, I, I know that when I sing along to Bob in my car, I only do it when I'm by myself. I never do it in front of anybody else. You certainly. sing on the podcast ever? It, that will never happen. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like, so, I mean, what was it about just the process of doing it that, that was that was healing for you? I mean, what, what was it about singing those words that, that, that did what you were looking for it to do? Well, I think as you would know from having a um, a podcast about Bob Dylan and from being part of the online Dylan community, um, there's something really fun and enriching and spiritually exciting about people getting together to celebrate one thing that mm-hmm. they love and talk about it and debate about it and kind of get into the the bones of the stuff. Because um, it's one thing to listen to a record at home and think, oh, man, I love Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Right. It's another right. to get into a studio with five people and go, all right, folks, now we're going to play Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got to be perfect for the next 14 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so so that's part of it. But, uh, but certainly music um, and songs like Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands in particular have a meditative quality. So that is helpful too. That song's Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands and I Contain Multitudes are both on the Blonde on the Tracks record right. and are both to me songs that I go to for some kind of spiritual, um, spiritual journey I guess mm-hmm. is the word that I'm searching for there there's something I don't go to church I'm I'm not a religious person I'm I'm agnostic and lapsed catholic for all <laughs> for all intents and purposes I've I've got all of the guilt and none of the god uh, <laughs> that's from my experience of the catholic church but to me music is still that place that I go to um to try and work out what what the meaning of life is <laughs> So you know, when you said you're working with the band, that's interesting uh, in that did you go into the recording not quite having figured out how you were going to approach these songs and you were collaborating with the band or it, or did it vary from song to song? Like, Do you, as a musician, when you hear some of these songs, do you sometimes say, hey, I, I know a way into that and that's not the way I'm doing it, he's doing it. Or, I mean, that could be true of any song, really. I mean, as a musician, you probably have an insight into how doing, in a way to do something that the rest of us people don't because we're we're not musicians. I'm not a planner. Um, Okay. And and planning things is a very fast way to make something unfun 
Okay. <laughs> no day job. No day job. So while I had chosen the um, the songs um, that we tracked in the studio, I didn't have a rigid idea about how those songs might sound. Okay. Um, and and neither did Patrick, the producer. I mean, aside from sort of putting my voice out front and center, in terms of the instrumentation and the tempo, that was all something that we worked out as we went along. Okay. Um, it's going into the studio is um, it's it's I like the mystery of it. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to go. If I knew before we recorded Queen Jane approximately that we were going to do it like the birds and put a 12-string Rickenbacker on it, that I would have thrown doubt on that idea. There would have been some something in me that was like, nah, I don't want to do that. Whereas if you just let the ideas come to me, it's much more um, interesting. All right. So, yeah, well, this is perfect time to mention what songs are on this record. Uh, there's It's Queen Jane Approximately, I Contain Multitudes. One of us know, one of us must know sooner or later. Simple twist of fate, sad eyed lady, which you mentioned. The man in me, going, going, gone, and you're a big girl now. So of course, all of these songs uh, are from a relatively small window of his career, basically sixty six through seventy five, except for I contain multitudes, which have, as you have got to be the first person to cover a rough and rowdy ways song. Uh, I mean, you were right out there. I mean, was that, was that always going to be part of it or? or... Oh gosh, no. I mean, how could I have known? Right, right, right. The the six, six of those songs. And when, and when you listen through to the record, there's six band songs, you know, full band with a great drummer, a guy called John Radford and a great bass player, John Estes. Um, They were all tracked in 2017. Okay. And then Patrick and I added different elements over 2018. Um, And it wasn't until the lockdown happened on March 13 that I, because after I, after I finished this Bob Dylan project, I started writing my own songs. It did work as therapy. There you go. Perfect. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Got what I needed. Now I'm going to go. So I, I've spent the last year working on my own record. But then when the lockdown happened, I was like, hmm, maybe I should put these Dylan songs out. And then, uh, as fate would have it, he started dropping singles into the, <laughs> into the universe. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, obviously Murder Most Foul is, uh, though I love a long song, <laughs> it's, not as, uh, it's not as immediately open to interpretation as I Contain Multitudes. And so when I Contain Multitudes came out in late April, I heard it straight away. I called Patrick and said, Oh, you're gonna kill me, but the Dylan project isn't finished. I've, I'm gonna have to do this. And uh, that's a very Dylan-like maneuver, by the way. <laughs> well, we're both mutable signs. I'm a Sagittarius; he's a Gemini. So <laughs> I, I, I couldn't. Um, yeah, I had to record. I contain multitudes. Now, keep in mind that the six band tracks were done in a proper recording studio called Magnetic Sound in East Nashville. And I'm not an audio engineer. I'm probably mm-hmm. about as much an audio engineer as Bob Dylan is, but he's been in more studios than me. So, mm. But I basically recorded it at home in my lounge room and then wow. sent it to Patrick and said, do you think you could make this a little bit more pro? 
uh, but I, and 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 to kind of so that it wasn't lonely on the album. Right, right, right. It needed to make sense and have one more song, so I threw in Simple Twist of Fate as well. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So Simple Twist of Fate was not originally part of it either. No. So I guess I guess Multitudes felt fated to me, so I threw in Simple Twist of Fate as a little, <laughs> as a little sister song. So what was it about I Contain Multitudes that just hit you? I mean, what doesn't hit one about I Contain Multitudes? What is it about it that hits you? <laughs> We're not here to interview me, Emma. We're here to interview you. I know. I've already done an episode on that, on that song. So, uh, I, so I mean, I, I was, for, okay, briefly, I, I was hit by it because I just was like, this is now the second song he's released in two weeks. And uh, my brain was more like, what's going on here? What's he doing? You know, because like, I sort of, paired it up with murder most foul like is there a record coming uh i mean i appreciated the sort of just uh, kind of simple the, the, the sort of like thinking out loud approach to it of, okay. of being though it was so open uh of just like is this and i i mentioned on the episode that i did with with the late great tara zook my my dear friend uh where i mentioned like there's that part in that song where he says i'll i'll show you my heart but not all of it and the way he says that, it almost seems like he just thought of that line as he was recording. And of course, I doubt that was the case. But only it sounds the like part. only the hateful part. <laughs> only the hateful part. Yeah, but not all of it. Yeah, it it almost sounds like you're you're in somebody's head, and he's just somehow being able to put it down into music. And I thought that was remarkable that he can still sound that uh, that um, uh, like that that off the top of his head. Like it's not he's not just you know these aren't words that he's written, which we know he has. Uh, but it just the fact that he can still pull that off. So anyway, I'm already going on too long. So what was it for you about that song? I mean, it's a very immediate and fresh sounding song. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And then on the deeper level, to me, it's a love song to music and poetry and visual art and everything that he holds or at least claims to hold dear in this particular piece of music. Um, I... the best Bob Dylan songs to me are the ones that make me laugh and make me cry at the same (laughs) time. It's like good Shakespearean tragedy or comedy. There's elements of both. And um, so I drive fast cars and I eat fast food. Like I just cracked up when I heard that the first line and I paint landscapes and I paint nudes. Like the way he sings nudes, I'm like, yes. Bob, this is great. This is what I signed on for when I became a card-carrying member of the Bob Dylan fan club. Um, (laughs) But it's a really moving song. And um, I've got that deep, you know, majored in English literature. I'm such a cliche. I've got that deep love of poetry uh, going on. And and I, I really enjoy it when songwriters talk about poetry in their songs. Um, It's something that I'm, trying to do in songs on my new record um and it's just very fun to me it's boring to me when musicians only ever talk about other musicians you know right our, right, right, right. Our, our sphere of influence you know you gotta you gotta get a little bit wider than your record collection you gotta go out and see stuff and read stuff and um that to me is how interesting art is made now you've mentioned some of the musicians and some of the poets that you you inf- influenced you. In terms of the record, like uh, what other? Obviously, there's lots of other musicians uh, that are influencing you that are coming out in a Dylan covers record. It's not all just Bob Dylan, obviously, because that would be 
pretty boring for you and probably for the listeners. So, I mean, are there are other musicians that you are bringing stuff to this, to these covers that maybe people wouldn't necessarily think yeah, of? I mean, all the time. I mean, I'm a female singer and, and, and um, I've always been hugely influenced by, by other female singers, particularly the great interpreters of song, you know, not necessarily the songwriters. So people like Dusty Springfield or Nina mm-hmm. Simone, um, Billie Holiday, um, Linda Ronstadt, Sandy mm. Denny, uh, you know, all pretty old school stuff. I, I, I kind of basically reincarnated straight from 1967 and then got, you know, born into <laughs> 1981. They were like, so you like these, you like, you like music of the 60s, enjoy digital drums. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, and I'm hugely inspired, inspired by Laurel Canyon stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so love the mamas and the poppers, the birds, Judy Sills, CSNY. Um, I just watched that great uh, Laurel Canyon documentary that they've got online at the moment, the two-parter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's really cool to get a little glimpse into that world. Um, the Neil Young on the um, on the beach, Neil Young, any of his sort of when he gets really into the gritty stuff in the 70s obsessed with that um but I guess I should I should say that you know I'm not totally old-fashioned either I like a lot of um newer things but though when I go when I immediately go to think of newer things I I go back to the 90s and that was only 30 years ago (laughs) (laughs) oh I'm so old I'm so old like as a teenager I was super into Britpop Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I love the Britpop stuff. I particularly love the way that English bands slag each other off. Um, okay. I think American bands are very polite about each other, but, <laughs> but if you're in Oasis, like, Oh, like, well, those guys <laughs> would like pull out a press release and be like, yeah, Damon Albin's a knob, um, <clears throat> type thing. So, but I love that. So Oasis, Blur, Pulp, um, David Berman from this band, the Silver Juice is like, one of the great American poet songwriters and terribly underrated in, I hate that word. It's ugly. I'm not going to use that. He's, it's more that given his in, immense poetic gift, not many people have heard the silver Jews. Mm. And uh, he wrote this couplet. He had a song called strange victory, strange defeat. That's got a couplet uh, that goes, Squirrels imported from Connecticut just in time for fall. How much fun is a lot more fun than not much fun at all. And <laughs> it's just, it's something I absolutely wish that, that I'd written myself. <laughs> that, well, that, that leads in perfectly to something I wanted to ask you. And I love talking to musicians about this. Uh, because even though I do a show where I examine Bob Dylan songs one at a time, I will cop to when... I don't fully understand what he's talking about sometimes. I know that I have a feeling, uh, but it, like in terms of like really understanding or having a, you know, a cognitive understanding of what he's saying, I'm willing to say, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. So as someone who sings his songs or sings other people's songs at times, do you feel like you have to fully understand a Bob Dylan song to sing it correctly? Because I would imagine if you don't have some internal meaning in your mind, because obviously there is no one meaning, of his songs. It's whatever it is. It means to you, but do you feel like you have to have some understanding of what you are singing? Because otherwise I would think it's almost like you're doing it phonetically. Like you're almost 
it's just almost like gibberish in a certain way. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like, like when you approach these songs, do you feel like you have everything? I mean, when you're singing Satellite of the Lowlands and he's singing about his sheet metal memory of Cameron Rowe and the, you know, the King of Tyrus, do you, in your mind, do you know what you're kind of saying at that point? Well, I think to me, uh, the thing with interpreting songs is it's more about having an emotional and intuitive connection with the song right. than looking for a definitive meaning. Um, as an interpreter, any song that I cover, be it a Roland S. Howard song or be it a Bob Dylan song, um, it's always an attempt to understand myself better <laughs> rather than an attempt to get to the crux of, of what the writer of the song may or may have not intended. Right. Um, and I know that some people will go in search of a, a more permanent meaning to attach to Bob Dylan's songs. Um, but I kind of think that attaching a rigid meaning to the words of a Gemini is a really <laughs> foolish enterprise. And, yeah, yeah. And it's certainly not uh, something that I do. Right. I mean, I have said on other episodes where there are there are songs that of his that I know that what I take from it is not what he intended, but that doesn't matter. You know, it's it's already out there, and it doesn't matter what he intended. It's what I get from it. That's so, exactly right. I mean, once it's left, once it's left the artist's sort of right, it's out of his out of his or her hands at that point. Yeah, it's 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 up to you to to what what it may or may may not mean. So how did you decide on what, what songs to go after? I mean, some of these I was, if, I, I don't know, not the word impressed is not the right word, but surprised. I mean, Going, Going, Gone from Planet Waves, that's not a rec, That's not a song I don't think really many, many people cover. The Man and Me, maybe it's a little more famous now because it's been in movies and stuff, or, but how did you arrive at some of these, some of these songs? Um, because... So many people have recorded Bob Dylan songs. Um, I was very conscious that doing some of his songs, even though I particularly like them, I I didn't necessarily have anything to add to the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, or they're just done. Like, right. Um, even though there are songs that I just adore, you know, like Just Like a Woman or Lay Lady Lay or... You know, um, there's just so many visions of Johanna I'm particularly obsessed with. Um, but I wanted to explore some deeper cuts because I think that's fun. It's mm -hmm. fun for everyone. <laughs> the only song that I knew was definitely going to be on the album was Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Um, simply, and that shows you everything that you would ever need to know about my commercial instincts. <laughs> I don't have any. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, let's do something radio friendly. Right. Here's, here's 11 <laughs> minutes and 59 seconds of pure dysmalia. Um, so uh, that was the only one that I really wanted to, to definitely do. Um, and then after that, it was like more, it was a, it was a good opportunity to go back to my collection of Dylan records and listen to them again. And in not just be a fan, but think, okay, I'm going to sing these songs. What? That's interesting. Oh, that's good. That's so you really, you went back through the collection at, with the mindset of what's here that I could do. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, that's fascinating. Kind okay. of shitty, like 
top 50 Bob Dylan songs playlist put together by right. someone them on the internet. I right. went to my own record collection and yes, I've got New Morning and yes, I've got Planet Waves. Of course I have. <laughs> so that, that was a fun thing to do. Were there any songs that you want, would want to do? And you just were like, you, you said about there some you felt you couldn't bring anything new to the conversation because yeah, some of them have been covered 4,000 times, but there were there some that you were like, boy, I'd like to, I'd like to take that one, I'd like to tackle that one, but I just don't, I don't exactly know how to do it just yet. And so I'm going to leave it behind. Yeah. Sweetheart Like You to me, okay. you know, going back to Infidels, which is where we began right. um, this interview. Uh, I really love that song. And um, one day I would like to cover it, but I was not singing it very well in the rehearsals, um, which is another thing, you know, sometimes, sometimes you can love a song and you just don't sing it well doesn't fit your register or the timbre of your voice or so yeah that um and then there's yeah I've got a real um weakness for Tweeter and the Monkey Man (laughs) 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 Uh, but I sound ridiculous you know I've got like one of those sad voices you know (laughs) sad female voices and me singing Twitter and the monkey man were hot up for cash. <laughs> they stayed up all night selling cocaine and hash. It just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> did you did you actually try it in the studio? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, okay. All right. I sing it at home. I sing it in the shower. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, it's interesting because you're talking about infidels so much, and yet there's no infidel songs on this record. That's interesting. No, no uh, I guess it's I guess I was more um you know, it's still one that I go back to, but I guess it's a behind-the-scenes influence more than a front and center. Just as a, a side note about that record is the Infidels. The original uh, re- original name for Infidels, his original title for that record was Surviving in a Ruthless World. Oh, and, my gosh. And he, <laughs> he, he, and he changed it for the most arbitrary reason in that uh, he said this in an interview. I'm not uh, just yeah, – I'm not just uh, – coming out of this out of nowhere, he said in an interview that apparently somebody pointed out to him that his last four records had all started with the letter S. And he was like, oh, well, I don't want to, I don't want people to think that I'm just doing S records now. So he changed it. And I thought, what an incredibly arbitrary reason to change the, the title. But I feel like Infidels gets more informed when you know that, when you know that that was the original title of the record. I'm like, wow, that, 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 that record sort of, gets recontextualized when I know that it was originally called Surviving in a Ruthless World, I mean, not so much infidels. When you think about the era that we live in, um, you know, from when Bob Dylan first started making records to today, all of his albums could be called Surviving in a Ruthless World. That's a good point. World. They're all kind <laughs> of that. One way or another. Um, but I love that that's the, the working title for infidels. Yeah, that's, uh, I feel like in, in another universe, in, in an alternate universe, the better universe where 2016 didn't happen uh in the alternate universe for surviving the ruthless world exists that's the record that has blind willie mctell on it and like right. foot of pride that's the one he didn't <laughs> screw with and it's like this perfect masterpiece so um in terms of like what are well what are like do you have some favorite dylan covers of your of your own like you've heard other people do and you go wow that's fantastic oh absolutely i mean i will say when i was making the record that i didn't listen to other people versions of Dylan songs because there's so many good ones. Um, So the way Joan Baez sings the word flat on Daddy, You've Been On My Mind, Mm -hmm. I've been obsessed with the way she sings that. (laughs) Flat, 
(laughs) I've been obsessed with that for about 20 years. Um, I still, you know, I'll play it over and over again. And and then I'll I'll play Judy Collins' version of that song and then I'll be Lin- play Linda Ronstadt's version of that song. That's a really fun, any singers listening to this podcast, it's a really fun and dorky exercise to just <laughs> play all the different covers back to back. Um, Marianne Faithfull's version of Visions of Johanna mm-hmm. and her take on It Takes a Lot to Laugh and It Takes a Train to Cry. I'm a very big Marianne Faithfull fan, um, not just of her folky stuff but I'm super into the broken English record the kind of really rough why'd you do it era Marianne I'm super into so I love her versions of the songs her voice is always heartbreaking to me um I am I don't know if you've ever seen the Charlie Brown Peanuts comic strip where there's the record player and they play this uh, this sad song and they go oh that was really sad and then they go yeah play it again (laughs) (laughs) that's me basically um that's my modus operandi um I really uh I get a lot out of songs that make me cry um so Nina Simone doing I Shall Be Mm -hmm. Released um oh yeah that's great Gillian Welch uh I saw her performing Tambourine Man at the Newport Folk Festival a few years ago, and that was incredibly moving. Um, she really sang it with so much reverence and so much love. And I think that's that's probably more than having an idea about what a song means. Mm-hmm. If you can sing a song with reverence and love, that's just as important. And, and Gillian Welch really did that. One of the things that, that listening to your record uh, did for me is it, it it made me recall my all-time favorite Bob Dylan cover, which is by uh, – it was done live in 1992 for the 30th anniversary concert that he did. Uh, and it's a cover of You Ain't Going Nowhere by Mary Chapin Carpenter, Roseanne Cash, and Sean Colvin. Wow. And, yeah, it's I was at that show, and it's it, it remains my favorite cover of a Bob Dylan song ever – because it does have that reverence and it has that joy to it that is just, it's, it's like these people sort of, it, it's, it's implicit in the performance of, isn't this such a wonderful song and we're all sharing this moment together. And I, I got a lot of that from your record because like specifically like Queen Jane approximately, uh, I love that song of his. I, it's one of my favorite songs off of Highway 61, but the, the way that he sings it, the, the way that he, he sort of almost spits it out a little, it's a very harsh sounding vocal. Uh, even though the, the, the lyrics are meant to be a little more on the gentle side, it's kind of, you know, the more gentle version of like a Rolling Stone. Uh, but he sings it in a kind of harsh way. And I really liked your approach to it, uh, which was this kind of much more sweet kind of, um, kind of conversational, uh, sort of tone I took from it, where it's just, it's, it's, you, I don't get the sense that the singer in this case, you are like in the person's face. The way Bob is on the on Highway 61. <laughs> Yours is more in 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 your version. You're kind of sitting back a little and strumming this this song. And the harmonies are beautiful. The the chorus on it is just beautiful. But it's it's more you're letting the person you're singing to come to you, which I really appreciate. It really grabbed me when I first heard it. Oh, thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, I always try to capture a sense of intimacy in whatever I'm doing. Um, I, my music is really, it's very much made for coffee shops and Mm. small, small clubs. Like I'll never be like a rollicking stadium rock 
thing. <laughs> like, the idea of me spitting out Queen Jane approximately, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I mean, I get angry about stuff, but I don't have, I don't have that level of acerbicness to bring to a performance. Um, You're not going to be playing the Wagga Wagga Hujo Dome at some point? <laughs> Oh, totally. <laughs> 40,000 people and you're screaming out the words and stuff like right. that. It's not going to be happening. Okay. It's good to know. <laughs> but I think and something else that, that, that your, your record made me think about that cover that I just mentioned is uh, a lot of the songs that you picked are very specifically from a male point of view in terms of the pronouns. And while that's not anything anybody remarks upon anymore, and one of the things I liked about the cover uh, of You Ain't Going Nowhere is there's the line in that song about, um, you know, tomorrow's the day my bride's going to come. And that song in that instance was being covered by three women and they didn't change the line. Uh, they, they left it as my bride's going to come. And I like that. I like that they just left the line because it's like, who cares? What difference does it make at this point? You know what I mean? You don't have to change it. And I liked that so many of the songs you picked are sort of specifically from a guy writing it and singing it. And yet that's, that's not what's going on in this, in this instance. Well, all the songs remain sung from a female perspective when I do that. I mean, right. I didn't want to put a heteronormative context on, right. the, on the record. Um, that's certainly not what I'm about in my life or in my art. Right. Um, and as you say, like, I think that changing the, the pronouns, I mean, it didn't make sense to me. It seemed like a very dated yeah. way to do it. Um, but certainly... I did choose songs because I wanted to use those pronouns. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to sing you're a big girl now. Right. I wanted to sing the man in me. Right. Um, because I'm very interested in the exploring of um, the masculine and the feminine within. And we've both got, you know, you and I both, all people, male, female, non-binary have masculine and feminine energies working at play within each other all the time. Right. And, um, and I wanted to, I guess, I guess this record is perhaps an acknowledgement that at least at the time this, re this album was born for me, my masculine side was perhaps underdeveloped. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, I definitely lacked confidence. Um, I lacked a sense of entitlement. Um, I, I, what do you mean? I'm sorry. What do you mean by that? Um, I, I mean, I was depressed when I made this record or, or I, I wasn't depressed when I finished it. Right. Um, but I certainly needed to go to therapy and I had very low self-esteem and, um, Bob Dylan to me, though he's had his trials and his tribulations, he has never struck me as an artist as being someone underconfident. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I wanted to try on his jacket, see okay. how it looked. Like a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get the sense that at some point Bob's probably not terribly insecure about a great many things. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that's that's probably a safe bet. So and something else I wanted to ask you about, again, you're, you're a professional musician. Now, we all know that Bob is not particularly sacred uh, towards his own songs, sometimes almost perversely so. Uh, he's, you know, I've I've had a great many people on my show who talk about, oh, I saw – a Dylan concert with my friends and I was all for it, but my friends were like, what the hell is this? You know, I mean, this isn't the version I wanted to hear. How do you feel about in reinterpreting your own songs? I mean, you're, you obviously you're not doing anything live now, 
but when you learn, you will be at some point again. How, how do you feel about doing your own material? Do you feel like it's, you want to do it the way you, you felt it was the right way to do it in the first time? Or are you just like, no, 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 I'll just blow it up because that's, that's, they're, they're meant to be malleable. For me, because I am by and large unsuccessful, you know, I've never been a, I've never been a financially backable touring musician. So that has always meant that many times my shows, they, the reinterpretations of the songs, because they have to be, because I can't afford to tour with a five piece band. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, do I want to do this song like a folk song? No, I probably don't. But can I afford to pay people to come and play to 27 people in New York? No, right. I also can't. So, <laughs> so you know, um, you, your limitations are your strengths sometimes. Um, um, I have seen Bob Dylan play live, I think, perhaps five or six times. I was, I was wanting to ask you that, too, if you've seen and, him live. Um, and every single show has been majestic, a total <laughs> gift. Um, I love it. Um, I always want musicians to do whatever the hell they want. To me, that's completely liberating. Um, so I saw Paul Simon a couple of years back when he did that farewell tour Mm. and it was, there were fairly faithful renditions of America and Graceland, but if he wanted to do the techno version of Ghostland, I would have been there for it. I would mm-hmm. have put my hands in the air raving. Um, you know, uh, to me, yeah, I, I don't buy a concert ticket to hear the record. Right, because you already have the record. <laughs> I, right. I buy a concert ticket to see the show. Right. So yeah, right. So you're whatever this person is wants to put out in this particular moment. That's what you're there for. Not so much, you know. The yeah, jukebox or whatever. I'm there for the communion between the artist and the and the music listener. To that, that I'm there for that sacred church-like element of going to the show. And if the preacher up there wants to preach in a particular way, I'm ready to download it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very much uh, do what you want. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm a fan. So when you've seen Bob live, uh, do you do you just you just took it in as a fan, or are you analyzing it on some level on a musical level because uh, you know because you have that background and you've sang his own songs, but you sing your, you do your own songs? Are you able to just turn that off, or do you try to turn it off? It's kind of like how people that are doctors that watch doctor TV shows are like, that's not the way that works, or whatever. The rest of us don't know. Yeah, do you just enjoy it as a concert and you just forget all that. Well, I mean, there are definitely some shows that I've been to, um, not Bob Dylan shows, but as a, as a musician, you can't help but go to a, a show and kind of go, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's going on here with the lights? Where did <laughs> they get that guitar player from? Um, a lot of it for me has always been about the economics of it. Like I will you know, when I'm watching a seven-piece band play to 200 people, because I love indie rock, I go to a lot of indie rock shows, I'm like, okay, where are they staying tonight? Are they, <laughs> staying, 
Are they in like a sketchy red roof in somewhere, like on the outskirts of Murfreesboro? Like, have they been fed? Have they been watered? You know, the, my maternal side stuff. Right, right, right. Okay. Obviously, when you're seeing um, someone like Bob Dylan, uh, who's had a lot of success with his song, you don't worry so much. <laughs> I'm sure he's staying at a very nice hotel. I don't it? feel like Bob Dylan's like band mom. Like, who? Right. I wonder if he's okay. Um, <laughs> But no, so I'm much more into just the experience of it. But just get it, staying in the moment as much as possible, you know. And and that means like I'm not one of those people who goes, okay, you just played this, and now he's playing. You know, I'm not one of those. I don't go to shows and I record them, and I don't go to shows and then write down the set list. Um, The five or six shows that I've been to. Outside of a handful of songs, I probably couldn't even tell you what he played anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the way my mind works. Um, but I do, you know, like like many of us, I, I go to gigs for the community experience. Mm-hmm. And so I'll talk to my friends about it afterwards and, and have a lot of fun. I have to tell you that, I'm, I mean, I'm old enough that I was going to see Dylan concerts before the internet. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there were things there. The world did exist before the internet. And I would go see Dylan shows and I would sort of at times not be in the moment because I was trying to memorize the set lists Yeah, because there was no other way I was going to be able to access it. And then once uh, the, you know, the internet popped up and Dylan, the Dylan fan groups came up and you knew you could get the set list. I, I could relax. I was like, okay, I don't have to remember what the fourth song was. Cause I'll just look it up when I go home tonight. <laughs> but those first couple of shows, I was like, okay, I did train tangled up in blue. And then he did. Okay. Then he did. Oh, which one was, was that like a woman? Was that third? Okay. And it was like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, I'm in the room with Bob Dylan for Pete's sakes. Focus, you know, pay attention to what's going on on stage. In a way, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks that that's really great. And then because of the way that big band shows are structured, once people start sharing, I mean, unless you're a Springsteen, really, Springsteen kind of brings in a lot of random stuff into mm. his lists. Um, but most big band shows are structured. And once that set list gets leaked, you kind of know what the band is going to play. I remember mm. I went and saw Fleetwood Mac on that most recent tour that they did with um, with Neil Finn and mm-hmm. Mike Campbell in the band. A fantastic show. I mean, I'm, Stevie Nicks is a, another total hero of mine. Oh, yeah, sure. Like the great white witch of rock and roll. <laughs> um, but my friend sent me the set list before we went to the show. Oh, uh, to say, oh, well, they didn't play this in Chicago, just so you know. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> That's that. I've never I've never experienced that before. That would be very strange to know what you're going to hear before you hear it. Well, I mean, it wasn't – it was a set list from a, a previous right. show, but, but with a big, you know, production level like that, you're like, okay, I guess this is what they're playing. Right, because they have the cue the lights and all that other kind of stuff. So. Especially That's- with the, the encores, like uh, on that tour, Stevie Nicks performed Free Fallen. Mm. Um, oh, wow. Oh, that's wonderful. And and they also did um, one of Neil Finn's songs, Don't Dream It's Over. I love, um, I love that song. So in a way, those, those were the kind of the, the little secret in the in the candy <laughs> um, of the show, but but I knew they were happening before I got there. 
So, okay, there's two last things I want to ask you before. You've been very generous with your time. I know you're very busy promoting the record, and so uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But two other things I want to ask you before we wrap up here. One is, now that you've heard Rough and Rowdy Ways, are there other songs in there that you feel like you would love to have sink your teeth into at some point? I mean, I think the natural answer there is I've made up my mind to give myself to you. Mm-hmm. I That one is just so weepy and so... <laughs> Really beautifully sad. So beautifully sad. Um, that's the one that I um, lean on the most. But I, if I was touring Blonde on the tracks, I would probably say goodbye, Jimmy Reed, or something, something really fun. Oh, that's that's going to be a blast to hear live whenever he gets back Isn't to the it? road. It's going to be great. So you know, um, I guess I, I I don't want to commit too hard to anything because I I do want to tour this at some point. Sure. And, and I do want the freedom to be able to change my mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, again, a very Dylan-esque move. you got to change your mind, you know, whenever you feel like it. you got to do it. So, and then finally, like, you know, the, the, the whole Dylan covers, that's a whole separate thing. Aside from Bob Dylan's career itself, the idea of Dylan covers is a, is a completely separate field of endeavor, kind of. And, Joe, you, you mentioned already why what you were hoping to get into get out of this when you started it was was you were in a bad place and you wanted to kind of do sort of self-healing what did you do you feel like is there something that you want this record to add to the conversation to borrow a phrase from earlier on in, in the conversation of bob dylan covers i mean there aren't that many artists that have done entire records of covers. you mentioned judy collins joan baez uh joan osborne of course but i mean is there something that you feel like that this you you want to you you're saying something with this record that hasn't been said before in in, in terms of Bob Dylan covers. So so we're the OCD people of the group because mm-hmm. <laughs> we're like oh, I can't just do one song I've got to do a whole bunch. Uh, right. But um I guess I didn't make the record to contribute to any kind of canon of mm-hmm. Dylan covers. Um and I didn't even really think about that at the time. Um. I think that if I got too bogged down in what what that might mean, I would have come across uh, many more stumbling blocks in the process right. because I really just wanted to do the the old make art for art's sake because I think that's where the catharsis is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I also, yeah, I made this record for really selfish reasons. I didn't do it for Bob Dylan. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I didn't make it for Dylan fans, though I'm really happy if if Dylan fans like it. Um, yeah. Uh, I, um, to me, yeah, it's more just it's a moment of my life that's been captured on right. tape in the right. same way that any record would be, whether they were my own songs or whether they're Bob Dylan songs. Um, and I'm really happy to to have done that and to be sharing that with the world and, and where they sit in the canon, it's not really up to me, but I'm sure, I'm sure there are opinions about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Absolutely. So, well, uh, I said, Emma, thank you so much for, for doing this and thank you so much for this record. I said, I've really been enjoying it ever since you sent it to me. I've been listening to it like every day since, since you, since you put it on and it is a great, you know, we're all living through this, horrendous year which is 2020 and uh you know it's been nice to have something to kind of just 
kind of turn down the temperature a little bit, <laughs> you know, and just, you know, in my, in my daily existence. And then this, I've been really enjoying listening to this record. And so I thank you so much for, for doing it. I mean, again, we do these, sometimes we do artistic things for, as you say, selfish reasons, but it, we put it out there and then other people get things out of it that we can't possibly imagine. And so there's going to be all these people enjoying this record and having this, these new interpretations of these wonderful songs. And so you did a great job on it and I'm, I'm really thrilled that it's out there. I hope it's a big success for you. And I really appreciate you coming by on my show to do this. I, it really means the world to me that you would stop by to, to do this. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. It's an absolute joy to get to talk to Bob, uh, to talk, to talk about Bob Dylan, you know, like it's just, I'm a music nerd. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to suck when I put out my own record of my own songs, because it's not going to be as interesting (laughs) to talk about. (laughs) Well, but you know, I mean, it, 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 we've, we've talked, I've talked about on the show about, you can see these periods through his career where he's gone back to the well to sort of, I think probably, I mean, not that he's necessarily ever said that, but you can interpret it that when he did the the folk records in 92 and 93, and then all of a sudden, boom, a couple of years later, his time out of mind, you feel like, and he's, he's sort of like going back and, and, and reinvigorating himself. And he did that with the Sinatra records. And now there's this new record and that's what you did, except you're going to the Dylan songbook. And so it's this constant renewable source. That's just, un, you know, unbelievable that it's all out there. And it, it did, it did what you wanted it to do. And now it's got you songwriting again. So it's like, yeah, Tim, thanks Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, he's always been there for me and for you too, I'm sure. Absolutely. So again, thank you so much, Emma. I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell people one more time where they can find you on the internet and when the record comes out? All right. Uh, yeah. So I'm in lockdown, uh, like <laughs> many of you. So the internet is the only place that you'll find me. <laughs> you can find me at emmaswift.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I've got lots of, if you want to get a, gr- a glimpse of my grumpy old crone persona, uh, Twitter is a good place to go. <laughs> um, and, and all those places. And the record's available um, online at my website and also available at Bandcamp. All right, fantastic. Like I said, we will have those links in the show notes, of course. Uh, if you want to follow uh, this show, you can subscribe to it on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on Stitcher. All the back episodes are on our website, firewaterpodcast.com. We're always talking Bob on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. And then finally, you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network over on patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. So a big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Patrick Carroll, and another supporter who will remain masked and anonymous for their support of Pod Dylan. So that's going to do it, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you later. Bye-bye.